Hi, this is James Shepherd, Profit and Growth Consultant at Authentically Present. I'm creating this podcast as a follow-up uh, to the recent event hosted by uh, Mark and Vanessa McGlade, uh, amongst others. So thank you for inviting me to speak at that, which was, uh, I think, the top 25 home instead franchises throughout the UK and their uh, their growth conference. So again, my thanks for inviting me uh, to uh, to share my thoughts with you on that. During that event, I uh, gave a presentation <coughs> which was entitled uh, Winter Storms and Silver Linings. Uh, subtitle was Welcome to the Winter of Discontent or Welcome to the Winter Wonderland. Which one will you choose? And it was about the um, focus during uncertain times of, of where I think our efforts should be with regards to um, Homestead Senior Care. So I'm going to reiterate on that and part of the response uh, and why I've created this this podcast is there were a couple of questions asked where people have um, wanted further information and wanted supplementary notes that went with it and um, and when I looked at my notes they were a little bit higgledy-piggledy and I thought rather than giving them to somebody to sort of um, work out for themselves it'd be an awful lot kinder if I if I just went through them and, uh, and podcast seems to be a a really sort of convenient way of doing that because you can do it in the car, you can do it while you've got your, your phone, you can do it anytime really. Um, so I thought I'd uh, disseminate this information through that medium. It also demonstrates one of the ways that we, we teach as well. One of the questions which I got asked was uh, what form, how do we facilitate the training that you're speaking of? And one of the methods is through podcasts just like this. So we can do f- um, face-to-face training, which is difficult now in, in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We can do virtual sessions through Zoom, Microsoft Teams, etc., uh, FaceTime, um, WhatsApp, and we can do um, podcasts. We can do telephone calls, which is either one-to-one or to groups, and we can also do written words, so Microsoft Word or, or text documents, basically, or, or the good old-fashioned mail printed documents. Uh, so a whole host and a whole, uh, quite a vast array, really, of, of mediums that we can disseminate information and train through. And this is just one example. So as part of that response, this answers one of the questions. We can do a whole host, depending on individuals, teams, and the circumstances, and, and the people in them, what they prefer. So back to my elaboration on the on the very brief 15-minute sort of slot that I have it ran over so apologies if I made anyone's lunch late um, but we answered a couple of questions on there and before I didn't recognized it was just under half an hour that we spent chatting time flies when you're having fun so <clears throat> going back to the presentation I'll go over it again but I'll go in and uh, into a little more detail and elaborate on some of the points which were very concise and, and time restrained last time so to begin so COVID-19 part two is coming the storm's on its way we discussed this um during the event and I used the uh, Game of Thrones winter is coming <laughs> in my uh, in my Ned Stark Yorkshire twang. So what does this mean for the wider economy? Well, a shrinking economy, we've already, already experienced that we are in recession. Uh, unemployment figures rise, there are uncertainty in workforces, slowing down of spending, um, quarantine for not just for people but for members of staff and ourselves as well. Um, isolation, same thing. Uh, withdrawal of services this could mean that it's difficult to procure services or even supplies from people but as as it has its as the isolation the distancing the social distancing that we need to to 
fulfill and the protection of our staff and employees, so does everybody else. So the supply chain dries up and, and slows down, which could mean that there are potential food and equipment shortages, you know, shortages of equipment that we, that we use all the time. Also, likewise, shortages of staff due to isolation and to quarantine and illness. So that's going to have quite an effect. So what does that specifically mean for the domiciliary care industry? Well, silver linings. I think there's going to be an increase in potential customers. So as social services and NHS are affected by isolation, lockdown, quarantine, just like everyone else, so are the services they can provide. So the capacity that they can actually engage with is diminished and reduced. Likewise, the NHS is going to be rapidly discharging people from hospitals to empty up beds so they become available for COVID-19. There's a general fear in the, within the public at the moment uh, for putting people into care homes, nursing homes, residential homes. They got very bad press and, and they were devastated in the, in the last wave uh, of COVID. So there is a general reluctance to place people in those environments. And like right now, as, as many, many people are experiencing, there are restrictions in the ability to go and visit and care for people. So family members can't visit the, the cared ones and the loved ones as they normally would. There are specific criteria that need to be required to, to be able to be considered an essential worker. Um, most people don't fit into that. So there's so there's a gap. There's a, there's a due to natural shrinkage of these social services and other people and other companies providing these services as well as NHS discharging people back into the community rapidly. People not taking places in care homes and people having to stay away. There is a gap. There is a, there is a gap in the market. And what does that mean? Well, that means that there's an increase for potential customers. So there is greater opportunity if we're in a position to grab it, to exploit that opportunity than there normally would be. Also, there's an increase for potential employees. There are fewer jobs in the economy. There's big job uncertainty. And whilst NHS and care and frontline services are riding the crest of, of popularity at this moment in time, there's emphasis and there's an elevation in status that people are, are seen to be involved in those markets and involved and seen to be for frontline care you know caregivers care workers so the current environment is very positive around there but we have to position ourselves so that we can make benefit of that otherwise we're just going to bask in the glory for the time that the sun shines so hi everyone uh, my name is james shepherd and i'm the growth and profit consultant at authentically pleasant Pro Pleasant. <laughs> I am pleasant, hopefully. Authentically present. I keep saying that. It's a bit of a tongue twister. So I'm James Shepherd. I'm the Growth and Profit Consultant at Authentically Present. I've worked in the care industry uh, for uh, a long time, since about the age of 14, because my family owned nursing and residential homes. And uh, I got involved uh, as soon as I started university, really, and then worked full-time whilst, whilst I was at uni. And Went from a greenfield site, so effectively a green grass field, to developing purpose-built care um, facilities, nursing homes and residential homes, opening them up, filling them up, operating them successfully um, through day-to-day -day management, ended up being group, group manager, uh, and then ultimately the sale uh, and, and disposal of the, of the, of the businesses. Um, I did that until the age of 26, so uh, eight years and during that time, um, family built up, ran uh, and sold 17 nursing and residential homes. Well, slightly less, but I were involved in Dad did it for 
you know, good time longer than I did. But yeah, 17 nursing homes and residential homes, and I lived and breathed it. So do I know what it's like to operate? Yes. Do I know what it's like to, to own effectively? Yes. Uh, so my introduction to working life was very much within that environment. Um, and I've had also the pleasure of working with several people uh, that were in attendance at the event uh, as, as franchise owners and operators as part of Authentically Present. Uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Likewise, my sales background, operation, operating and running my own businesses uh, through to running and operating large teams at, uh, at blue chip multinational organizations. But my entry point into sales was uh, as, a, as a bog standard sales rep where I was literally given a desk, a telephone and a laptop uh, and an A to Z, a yellow pages and that was dropped on my desk and, and, the, and the brief was go and sell stuff. Um, not the best training in the world but you know the sink or swim and, and, uh, and, and I swam. So a lot of my thoughts are, and, and the processes that I, that I teach people and show people are a result of 18 years of, of being in that environment and working out what worked and what didn't work for me throughout that process. Uh, ultimately leading to uh, being head of national um, national accounts in the public sector division within Conica Minolta, a um, large multinational blue chip company, where we uh, oversaw, was part of our group and our division, uh, tens of millions, uh, 80 plus million in terms of turnover. So at, at every stage I've worked through sales from real grassroots, uh, new sales rep, new business, all the way through to being manager, regional manager, uh, all the way through to heading department. So that's where my sales expertise and experience comes from. And at this moment in time, uh, I've, I think everyone's pretty aware that there is certainly uh, an opportunity for adversity, but there's also just plain opportunity as well. And it's how we differentiate between what could be an adverse environment, an adverse um business uh, development program as opposed to a lucrative business development program and how do we identify the two and how do we act accordingly to make sure that we succeed rather than shrink or fail and it's how we do that that we're going to focus on now so what's my experience based on my experience is based on certainly with home instead working with multiple franchises various different levels and stages of growth I've worked with people that are in the the, the the top two three four five six seven eight nine ten of the, of the of the company as well as people that have gone from um 40 45k up to now 80k plus within a very short period of months and again people that have gone from 80 to sort of the 100k and and slightly more um so various different people at various different stages but the processes remain the same and the processes work and they're applicable um, because it's people, the infrastructure, that by very nature of franchise is similar in the way that they operate. So we can be sure that what's worked in one, two, three, four, five different franchises will work in other ones too. So that's where my confidence and my expertise and my experience is leading me to. And uh, I very much believe that there is certainly an opportunity as franchise owners and operators to benefit and grow and become much stronger during what will prove otherwise to be difficult months ahead. <clears throat> We've seen huge swings uh, in, in different approaches and different techniques that people have adopted within the Homestead franchise. Some people have shrank by 20-25%. I've been happy to do so. They've battened down the hatches and hope for the best and, and, and come out on the other end 
25% smaller than they went in. Likewise, I've worked with people that have grown 50, 60, 60% plus. Um, so the swing is huge, you know, and, and certainly which side of that would I want to be? And I'd want to be in the greater than 50% growth. You know, that's that's pretty obvious as a business owner. That's where you want your business to be because that's what we're going to benefit from. So how do we do that? What are the three things that I believe we should strongly focus on? Well, industry patterns and historic behavior lead me to believe that the three main things that we need to focus on are sales, recruitment, and above and below the line thinking. So again, that's sales, recruitment, and above and below the line thinking. So if we take these three elements one at a time and we discuss sales. Now sales is quite often seen as almost a dirty word within within business. You know, it's the sales department and everyone envisages the, the double glazed salesman, you know, buy your upstairs windows, we'll give you your downstairs free or the, the second hand car dealer, you know, that's going to try his best to palm off a, a, a dodgy car onto you. But sales is pretty simple as far as I'm concerned. It's all about aligning people's desires with the products or services that we sell. And how do we do that? Well, there are various different factors at play. We discussed price, you know, when we went to the adage of, you know, home care is not a price sensitive market. All you've got to do is get in front of the customer. Well, no, that's not true. You've got to align the customer's desires to your services or product. And how we do that is key. We do that by uh, investigating two key elements and and they are the person's status and the perceived value of the offering so the offering could be a product or a service whatever it is so to give you an example of that if i said right i want you to take my wheelie bin down to the bottom of my my drive and um, leave it there for the bin men to collect and if you do that i'll give you a pound i'll give you a quid now you're probably going to say no you know, it's raining outside and it's pretty windy. It's bleak midwinter. No, a quid's just not worth it. So the perceived value is, no, it's not worth it. If I then said, well, I tell you what, I'll give you a fiver. Take the same wheelie bin down the same drive and I'll give you a fiver. You might start thinking, well, is it worth it? But the chances are still it's a bit rainy and wet and windy outside. You're going to say, well, no. If I then turn around and say, okay, take my wheelie bin to the bottom of the drive, there's 500 pound in cash in my hand, I'm gonna put it on the table there, and once you've left the wheelie bin at the bottom of the drive, walk back up, that 500 pound is yours. You're gonna take the wheelie bin. It's a bit of an extreme example, but it demonstrates the perception of value. The other influence that we can create is around status for someone. So during the presentation, we talked about um, Christian Dior handbags and Chanel and Gucci or whatever they were and Louboutin shoes and Rolex watches and Breitling and Amiga watches, all that kind of thing. We said, have we ever lusted after one? Have we ever desired one? And the answer is yes, because they're exclusive, they're expensive and they demonstrate status. If somebody looks and you're wearing an Amiga watch or a Rolex watch or whatever it is, someone's going to look and go, that's expensive. And it elevates that person's status, or at least it gives the wearer the perception that their status is elevated as a result of the very clever advertising that these people put in place. So we influence the status. And conversely, at the end of that question, when I said, who's ever desired them? I said, would you actually still want one if they were commonly and freely available from Primark and cost a fiver, genuinely cost a fiver? And the answer is no, because everyone would have one. Or you could get one and then they're perceived as being cheap. So they wouldn't affect your status in a positive way. 
So therefore we just simply wouldn't want one. We also discussed about price sensitive markets and pricing strategies. So my argument regarding with regards to price is that it's the perception of value, not the actual price of the product. So we can move away from the race to the bottom because there is only one person, one organization, one company that has the market advantage within this sector, within any sector, of being the cheapest. Just one. Just one company, one person that within their region can turn around and say, I am the cheapest. And it's just one advantage. They're not turning around and talking about quality or resilience. They're talking about price. There's just one person and one advantage, but there are many, many advantages in not being the cheapest. And we need to identify what they are. And they all link back to perceived value. So how do we create the perceived value and influence the status of the person that we're trying to sell the products to? Well, first and foremost, we have to consider two elements. One is that a confused mind will never buy and that ambiguity and inconsistency is the key to being unsuccessful. Not a positive thing, a very negative thing. So if we freestyle or if we learn to wing it uh, during any sort of sales pitch promotion endeavor that we try to create if we just play it by ear and ping information as we see fit to that person we create an inconsistent program we create an inconsistent set of circumstances which then leads to confusion and it doesn't align people in the way that they would understand the information we're passing on so if we fail to align people to our services or if we create confusion, then people will not buy. So if people aren't aligned and people are of a confused mind, they will not engage further. They'll certainly stall. It doesn't mean that they won't complete a sales cycle with you. What it means is that will be a more protracted sales cycle and that the chances of getting there are less than if it was concise, accurate and aligned. So I talk about sales, I talk about the product and the service, and that is status and perceived value. But what I tend to focus on more than the actual offer in itself, because you will be an expert in what you offer, <clears throat> I talk about adding value to the sales process and to the sales strategy. Now, if we bear in mind that this podcast is aimed at the top 25 franchise owners within the UK of home instead, there's obviously a successful sales process in place. There's, there's a degree of success that's been achieved. Otherwise, you wouldn't be where you're at now. So we're not looking at reinventing the wheel. And that's an important thing to understand. What we're looking at doing is making that wheel as round and as light and as true and as free spinning as possible. Because when we create that, we create marginal gains. And marginal, consistent marginal gains is what we want to take away from this because that creates an evergreen process whereby continuous improvement and just getting that extra one continuously gives us huge rewards at the end. During the presentation, I talked about what gaining one extra client based on an average income per client of around £1,100, which is, I think, about the national average. If we just get one extra client per month, that means that by the end of year one, we have an additional £86,000 of income generated from that one extra client per month. By the end of year two, that's over a third of a million pounds. By the end of year three, we're upwards two thirds of a million plus. You know, I haven't done the calculation, but it's a, it's a lot of money. 
by gaining that one additional client per calendar month. And that's what we should aim at. And it's very important that we link all this sales process back to target setting and target management, which is another element that I go into great great depth with, with owners and managers of, of franchises of how we create what we want to achieve into reality and how we turn that into a concise plan and how we monitor and measure and feedback that. So to recover, what we're after is marginal gains in the sales process. And how do we refine the sales process? Well, we teach people how to initially objection handle. So this is when people ring in and, and inquiries are created. We teach people how to handle objections and we understand what an objection is because an objection is not actually a negative thing. It's a positive element. It's understanding why it's positive and flipping that into action. Then um, further down the, the, the process, we teach people how to um, create a framework within the care consultation meeting itself. So how to create an agenda and the agenda must cover things like introductions, um, understanding and listening to that, pe that person's uh, story. How do we do that? And how do we create and identify what success looks like? How do we resolve and solve the problem? So then we're doing objection blocking. And objection blocking at this point is how to deal with matters, whether it's a, a perceived or potential um, problem um, or, or objection, or whether it's just part of the information that you wish to transfer across to someone. But we do that on our own agenda. And we do it by identifying four things. So we identify the problem, we resolve or solve the problem, we demonstrate the problem, and then we get a micro buying. And that's the very important bit. How do we align people? And it's the micro buying at each stage. And by doing this process, it works back to a psychological theory called cognitive dissonance, which is very interesting in and of itself. But it describes to us how the human mind works when we align thoughts and patterns and how we get people to have conviction in those processes that we do. So when we deal with an objection, rather than allowing it to be raised to us, because then the cognitive dissonance works against us, we raise it and deal with it on our own terms and how we deal with that. And then cognitive dissonance works for us, it works with us. And once we've dealt with that issue, that issue goes to bed and never to be re-raised. It's a very powerful tool. So we use objection blocking and we teach that. Then as part of the agenda and the framework of the care consultation, we lead people so that we reduce barriers through positive reinforcement all the time. We reduce barriers and we create a situation whereby the deal will close itself. So we close the deal by asking a question. We don't close the deal by telling people what they want. That's a, a, a very poor way to tell somebody what they need. We act as a confident guide and we lead people to solutions. So as part of the presentation through objection handling at the initial stages through the call, right through to objection blocking at the care consultation, meet, the care consultation meeting itself, we act as what I describe a confident guide. If we crashed in the middle of the um, Brazilian rainforest and somebody stood up and said, I know where we are, I've worked out where the sun rose and where it's set and I know there's a river that way and if we follow the river we'll eventually re reach inhabited and um, inhabited villages and, and we'll be saved. This is the way we're going. This is where we're going to go. You'd follow that person as opposed to someone that says, well, uh, I think the sun rose there and it's about 11 o'clock. So that means I think that way might be east. And if we travel east, well, eventually we'll hit the sea. You know, which person are you going to follow? Always the confident guide. 
And we also get people to understand that there's an exchange of information whenever we're speaking to somebody. We don't say yes all the time in the hopes that if we say yes enough that someone will give us what we want. Part of the training works against that against that mentality so that we understand that it's a, it's a flow, it's an exchange of information where people give to receive and receive to give. That's how we best manage expectations and get the most positive outcome and how we identify what success looks like. So why do we do all this? Why do we, why do we need to look at rounding out the process of sales? Well, the process of sales within your organization, within your organization is the only element of your business that generates cash, the, the only one. So if, if I asked a question and said, well, all the, the caregivers that you have, all the managerial staff that you have, the schedulers, um, you know, the people that are involved in the, in the care, how much training have they had? Well, induction days, um, they, have to, they have to go through a training, training process, a formal training process. And which people go out and sell our services? Well, it tends to be the people that have been successful at caring or that have got experience in it. So sales is not generally there default area of expertise. So what does that mean? Does it mean that it's a naturally transferable skill from if someone's good at caring or good at scheduling or, or that's you know an experienced manager that they, they then can transition into producing sales? And, and my response is no, I, I've, I've yet to see a specific industry that, that feeds sales consistently and creates good salespeople. Sales is about information and knowledge and, and executing um, the, to the best of our abilities, the, the, the information that we're giving and, and how we transgress that into a positive outcome, i.e. to get somebody to come on board and pay us money. Does one necessarily mean that you're good at the other? My, my general opinion on that is no. So how much have we invested in training these people? How much have we given? How, how round have we made the wheel? How freely does it spin? How straight, how true, how heavy is it? Is it light or is it heavy? Is it consistent? Is it inconsistent? If I ask you now to predict what your sales will be in three months time, would you be able to do so? Or five months time, would you be able to do so given a specific set of circumstances? The answer is probably no. And if the answer is yes, then great, then you're somewhere towards. And if the answer towards the question of how much have you invested within that team that is the only team that generates you an income, the answer often is quite frighteningly none. So that's something to, to certainly examine and to spend some time on. So how do, we, how do we refine it? Well, we make it efficient. We make it efficient by maximizing the opportunity we have to convert prospective clients into clients. If we generate 10 leads and convert three people, we're obviously running at 30% efficiency. If we only generate the same leads, but double our efficiency, we create six customers. And bearing in mind an extra one is worth 86 grand a year or a third of a million in year two, that's an awful lot of money we're talking about. Conversely, what it means is we don't have to create the additional opportunities because we're inefficient at converting sales opportunities. So it's not, if we are operating at a 30% conversion rate, so with 10 opportunities, 10 inquiries results in three customers, we have to generate an additional 10. We have to double our capacity in terms of opportunity to create a doubling of the, the customers we have to six. So you go from 10 opportunities to 20, which is often very, very difficult. How do you market? How do you plan that? So my expression is that efficiency beats quantity every time. If we have 10 inquiries and we can convert them into six customers, we haven't got to go to the energy of creating an additional 10 inquiries. Likewise, we don't saturate the market and, and exhaust the opportunity that we have.
So efficiency beats quantity every time. So we have to become efficient at converting opportunity into reality. When we do that through upskilling and training of the sales team, we create a, a, a place where we can consistently predict based on inquiry numbers and the pattern of people that we're going out to what our future income will be and how we're going to bank and plan for that. That allows us to forecast. It's, it's very key. It's also very key to identify and recognize the fact that we only have one, one part of our business that generates an income. Everything else is a drain on that. And if the drain, i.e. the uh, every, everyone else, every other function, whether that's care, whether that's cost for mileage, whether it's administration, whether it's dividends, whatever it is, whatever the outcome is, whatever the, the expenditure is, that expenditure is a drain purely on the sales that are generated. And if expenditure is greater than sales over a period of time, it's 100% effective at killing businesses. So sales is key. There are two key elements from what I've identified from uh, experience working with with uh, homestead franchises. The businesses are sales and recruitment, you know, and recruitment just happens to be the reverse of sales. So on that, I'll move on to recruitment. So as part of the, the training process and the way that I describe recruitment to people, I link it back to the sign of the times, the message of the day, the word zeitgeist. I love the word zeitgeist. I discovered it several years ago and I've been trying to sneak it into, into conversations ever since. It literally means the sign of the times, the message of the day, the feeling of the people um, at, a, at a specific period of time. So at this moment, the zeitgeist is that everybody is loving NHS and frontline workers, you know. So that's the zeitgeist. So everything that we create in terms of opportunity for recruitment is exactly the backwards of sales. And if we approach it as such, then we can do so uh, quite accurately and, and to to a great extent, very efficiently. So it doesn't matter whether we're looking to fill a, a vacancy or whatever capacity that is, whether it's caregiver, scheduler, manager, it doesn't matter. The process for recruitment remains the same. And during the presentation, I talked about uh, three elements and they were the hook, the story and the offer. And I gave an example of, of um, headlines on tabloids and magazines that are designed to spike our curiosity and curiosity is a very powerful tool and if we can engage people in curiosity or we can engage people through emotional connection then we have a much better chance at recruiting people and getting them to want to come and work with us because that's the key so the call to arms is to get them engaged and apply and go through the process of recruitment we do that by offering or measuring three things the hook the story and the offer the offer is pretty static in terms of it. there is only so much you can pay per hour that the business will allow. There is only so much mileage you can pay, whether you've got uniform, non-uniform, all the, the perks um, that go along with the job and the payment that go along with it, although that includes bank holidays, uh, weekend pay out of hours, whatever profile payment, payment profile that you engage, they're pretty similar because the scope to increase that isn't there. You, you know, you can't pay a caregiver's £35 an hour to be the most attractive advertisement for recruiting because simply you've got a business. So that's pretty static. There's a wiggle room in it, but there's not such a large degree of flexibility, which means we have to focus on the hook and the story. Now, if the offer is to a great extent fixed, it means we have to focus directly on hook and story. And story is the 
the ability to transfer the message of the day, all the bits that you want to include, whether that's um, personality, um, the fact that you're CQC outstanding registered, whatever it is, all the different elements that you want to include, how to personalize that with someone and how to get your message, the zeitgeist, into that story to engage people and want to connect um, through a positive experience. And I say positive, and here's an example of what I mean. A great deal of many um, advertisements and recruiting um, adverts that you see on, whether it's Indeed, magazines, Facebook, wherever, they have a lot of negativity and barriers to entry built in them. So there are two key areas that we have to focus on. One is positivity and the other is removing barriers. And likewise with sales, we want to influence people's status. So there are three elements. So the status, barriers to entry and positivity. Positivity and barriers come under the same heading. So status on its own again. By being positive, here's an example of what I mean. If, for example, my boy Oliver is climbing up a tree and it's really, really windy and I'm getting concerned that he might fall, I could shout to him, Oliver, don't let go. Now, in order to comply with what I've asked, he's had to process that and look at it and go, right, okay, if I'm not going to let go, my brain, either consciously or unconsciously, has to figure out what letting go looks like. So I have to envisage letting go and falling before I can understand what not to do. Or, alternatively, I could say, Ollie, hold on tight. So his brain doesn't then have to process what letting go and falling looks like. He just has to hold on tight. So it's a positive action. Now, that's just through a, a small example of positive reinforcement through positivity. Asking for what you want, not what you don't want. And it's a whole new language. And there are some really glaringly, glaringly obvious uh, examples of this throughout the, the recruitment industry as a whole. And it's about how to get your mind around that and how to put into your mindset positivity and removing barriers. So if we do both things and link it through to making an emotional connection with the person that we're trying to recruit and by affecting the status of the person as well at the same time, then what we get is an emotional connection, which then means that there's a much higher likelihood of when we create the call to arms, i.e. the offer, and ask them to do something next, that they're likely to respond. And this has worked. It's been demonstrated through various different franchises throughout, throughout the UK um, within Home Instead. And it's, and it's positive. It, it does work. The other element that we influence is the hook. So a hook is something that should drive curiosity. When we create, when we create curiosity, then we create intrigue. We can do that by various different means. So we want something that's going to grab their attention. You know, and hold it. We don't want to, or it's very, and it's very unlikely that we're going to create the perfect recruitment ad. And the recruitment ad is the start of the process. So that's where the training, if you like, starts through this process, or where our thoughts should start in this process. So we look at that and we say, right, how do we engage someone? What is it that's going to make us stand out from everyone else? We don't have to be perfect, but we have to be better than everyone else. We have to stand out. What does that look like? And then we teach how to, we understand how to create the, the copy, the body of text, the story. And then the offer is what we're prepared to give in exchange for that person coming and working for us. So for their time and effort, we'll give this reward back. That's the offer. Okay, so when we understand that, we understand how to deliver that through positivity, removing barriers, and through affecting status.
Now, if the results aren't where they should be from any advertisement or campaigns or from any recruitment uh, drive that we have, it's always the hook, the story, or the offer that's the problem. If we identify which one of those, we can change accordingly. But likewise, we also can learn how to identify and change them accordingly to drill down into the particular types of people that we want. So that could be age demographic, uh, demographic sensitive, it could be location sensitive, it could be personality type sensitive, it could be a whole host of things. Then it's creating the mindset in the people that are doing the recruitment of how those three things, the hook, the store and the offer, influence the person that's reading it and the response that you get to it and how to link that back always to the message of the day, the zeitgeist. I'm, I'm quite happy. I've said zeitgeist about five times. Today's a good day. So it's how, how to link the zeitgeist to the story that we tell and how to grab the attention and how to create a call to arms as a result of that because that's the start of the process. That's where people will see the advertisements and that's what will create the initial response. So that's the start of the process we'll look at. Further down the line, we also look at how to use those same influences, the hook, the store, or the offer, the reduction of, the removal and reduction of barriers, the, the affecting of status, and how we can create positivity to ensure that the right people get through in greater quantities. So again, when we have a further call to arms, people actually act and it's understanding what triggers a call to arms. And it's always the hook, the story, and the offer. And how to create that personal link, that emotional link between the people that are involved in the process of recruiting and the people we are recruiting. And that's key. That's very important to understand that too. Quite often people say, well, I do this anyway. It's part of what I do. And it's great because, again, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just fine-tuning it. But it's understanding how and why we do things in the correct order of how and and why we do the things that we do, rather than uh, a, an inconsistent approach or not fully understanding what it is that's directly affecting one uh, response as opposed to another. And when we do that, we can look at streamlining uh, the efficiency of recruitment, and it's 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 simple and it's effective. Uh, and then obviously we can look further down the line at how we actually get people through the training criteria that that, that are. Uh, required in order that we can get people actually actually out there in giving care in the community, so to speak. So the three main focuses that we get is the hook, the headline, the attention grabber, the story, lead the person to the outcome that you want. We understand the influences within the story and the offer, what you can give in exchange for what they want. It's that simple, hook, story, offer at every stage of the recruitment process, whether that is the advertising stage, whether that's the interview stage, whether it's the call to arms to take it further to get somebody on board, or whether whether to complete training. Each element, it's a, the emotional connection through a p application of hook, story, and offer. That's what gains success through recruiting. It sales just backwards. Now that we understand how sales and recruitment are interlinked and how the processes can be interchanged, we start to understand what it is that's actually influencing people, whether they're our customers or the people we want to engage with and work with and how to get the best response from each one. And both elements look closely at aligning people. So we either align people to create a call to arms in the case of recruitment or we align people with the services that we offer in terms of sales and we refine each process. So rather than change the offer, and if we, if you were to cast your mind back, we talked about um, 
the the offer that we give in terms of the the processes we're not going to influence or increase the actual offering in terms of the service or the product that's being provided that's not what adding value is we're not talking about adding value to the offering what we talk and neither are we talking about uh, adding value to what we will offer people as part of recruitment see the one and the same thing they cancel each other out what we're talking about is the gap in between it's how to refine the processes of what we do because what we want to create is efficiency because efficiency always beats quantity always the third element that I wanted to discuss um, with you was uh, above and below the line thinking now this is a philosophy that that uh, I've, I very firmly believe in and what it does it creates a link between the way we perform tasks and the ability to create opportunity for thinking and getting the right people to do the right things so that we have a very fluid a very efficient business model now this model is almost like a trickle-down economy it has to start at the top so it's owners directors uh, manager senior management team that that this uh, particular philosophy applies to first and then it trickles down into management levels and then um, schedules call handlers you know wherever then then down and down if you like and the reason being for that is that we aim through this philosophy to examine three elements of each task that we that we undertake and we do so in order to create a line which we talk about above the line and below the line but what actually is the line well the line is where day-to-day -day operations meet strategic thinking and planning and that creates a line okay it's easily demonstrated by if I get you to imagine putting your head down and working you know whether it's on a keyboard or a pen and piece of paper whatever it is but your head's down you're buried in work that's heads down, that's below the line. If you are heads up, looking up, not engaged in in you know tasks, if you like, then you have the strategy, the planning, the foresight, you're looking you, you know where you're going, you're directing. Now directing a, uh, a business, choosing a strategy and and how we set the plan of how to achieve that desired goal, that strategy, how to implement it, how to achieve it is probably the most difficult task and requires the highest degree of skill and competency of any task that can be undertaken within a business which is why it's only the very most senior level that do that so this is not something that can be easily delegated so that has to remain with the most competent most skilled people but the idea the philosophy of above and below the line thinking is to identify tasks that people take and we do so by examining three criteria so first off, is the task business critical? If the answer is yes or no, we note accordingly. The expertise required to perform that task and matching the competency of the person performing the task both up and down. So if, for example, I gave uh, payroll as an example and said, is that a business critical task? Well, absolutely. People want to get paid at the end of the month. It's what people go to work for. I'm sure we'd have a, a very a quick abandoning of ship if we stopped paying people. But then we need to examine um, the expertise required to perform that task. So it may be that ultimately as the person whose money it is, you want to be able to press the button to release the funds and you want to be able to check everything that is correct and present within the, the schedule. So ultimately the decision may be with the owner operator or senior management team. But as part of that process, 
if we look at the skill and competency required to check it, which is if we say one, two, and three, three being the highest, then that's a three. You know, the, the, the level is high, it wants to be correct. It's a lot of money we're talking about. It wants someone with a high degree of competency to check that off. But in the scheduling, in terms of the number of hours that people have worked, the mileage that they may need paying for, uh, expenses, etc., and just adding those into a spreadsheet or a, or a, um, a, tabled, a table form, does the competency of the person need to be a three to perform that task? Well, actually, it's just copying one set of information and transferring it into another set of information. So the skill level on that could be a one. So is it appropriate for somebody that's got a skill level of three to be doing a task that requires a skill level of one? And the answer is no. So it's about matching those people. Likewise, if you've got a very complex procedure that's that's taken an awful lot of, a lot of time for somebody because it's above their competency level, then that should be transferred because if it was a skill level two and the person's operating at a skill level one, then if that went to somebody that's got skill level two or three, then it would take a, a lot less time because of the competence of, competency of the person engaging the task. So above and below the line thinking is literally where do we position the tasks? Now the idea being that we create a very efficient and fluid business where people are doing the tasks that they're competent in. And as part of a byproduct of this, People tend to get good at tasks they enjoy doing. So when we apply above and below the line thinking, job satisfaction normally increases. So we get an increase in efficiency and we also obviously get, as part of that, an increase in job satisfaction. So we get happy bunnies. What this ultimately means is, and the reason why we start for, as a trickle-down economy from this as a trickle-down philosophy, if we get the, the leader, the MD, the, the owner, the operator, the director, senior management team to analyze what they do and safely pass as many tasks as they can down below the line, then that gives those people time. We're all busy. We're all engaged in tasks all the time. And it's about creating the time to plan to analyze, to look at patterns, to look for and identify patterns and how to implement them, to strategize, to predict and plan accurately for the future. And in order to do that, we need to free up the time of the most competent people. Hence why it's a trickle down that we do. People often mistake thinking and spending time deep in thought, planning and strategizing with doing nothing. It couldn't be further from the truth. It's absolutely important and it's key, particularly in the times that we're coming into now with the winter of discontent or the winter wonderland, which, whichever you choose. This is how you'll choose. Your actions, your planning, your strategy right now will determine which outcome you get. And that could either be a very positive outcome or it could be a very negative outcome. But it's what plans we implement now and how to strategize. And also be mindful that the fruition, the fruit that we gain from sowing the seeds of planning and strategizing take three months it's a quarter of a year before we see that in full swing at least so what we put in place now is what we'll get in january so be mindful of that so we always need to be three months ahead of the game always so it's what we do right now right this second that will influence most heavily on what the outcome is and what outcomes we achieve and how we implement and adapt strategizing. There's a great 
culture, there's a, to say great, there's a culture within Great Britain, within Brit, the British sort of ethos, if you like, where we want to arrive at the office first and be last to leave and, and try and cram in as much work as we can in between and be seen to be busy all the time, you know, if someone walks in and you can be, you know, you jump. I remember myself when, you know, um, my sales director used to walk in, I used to sort of jump my hands to the keyboard, but quite often I'd be in thought about something and, and it was my sort of non-recognition of the, the value of me being in thought that, uh, that, that, that came to play. Um, you know, my namesake, a guy called James Shepard, is a South African guy, born in Southampton, went to, went to live in South Africa where he lives now. Uh, he, was, he was the chairman of the equivalent of Blue Circle Cement in South Africa. And I, and I, we lived next door to my mum and dad in, in Spain. They were fortunate enough, enough to have a, have a house in, in Spain. So he was their neighbour and we invited him around for a, a barbecue or a braai, as, as South Africans call it. And um, he told me what he did. Um, and I said, wow, that must keep you really busy. And he said, actually, no, I'm really good at my job, so I only need to work half a day. And and it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I've put my business in a place that's that's safe and secure, so it doesn't actually need me all the time. And I thought about it, and I thought, wow. And that was almost the birth of, of above, above and below the line thinking, because if we push the tasks down, then what we get is a place where we're not reliant upon an individual. We don't have bottlenecks in place. We don't. We're not key player reliant. We have a system that is almost self-governing. And when we link that back to the setting of of um, implementation of plans, which is targets and how we manage them, and that's another another area that I, tra I train people heavily in so if if you if you're very successful at identifying what plans are and how to implement plans action plans and targets through strategizing through planning then the chances of you succeeding and achieving those plans increases dramatically it's significantly significantly more powerful than than ad-libbing it or working towards vagaries or, or measuring so above and below the line thinking is uh, an exercise in pushing as many tasks below the line safely as we can achieve in the ultimate gain of freeing up time so that people can plan and process, analyze and structure. If we can do that, then the chances of being successful increase dramatically. We need to be mindful of that because you know people think that they can do the planning, that they can do the strategizing, that they can actually do all the things that they need to do whilst they're sat in a bath or whilst it's the weekend or they're watching TV. You can't. You can't do that. It's not possible. What you can do is plan time in the environment that you're wanting to influence and that you're wanting to change and that you're wanting to improve and give yourself time to strategize, to plan and to structure the way that you work to achieve the outcomes that we set. And that's all about action planning and target setting, which is something that we do. So... When we, tie, when we spend time in thought and planning and preparation, it's not doing nothing. It's doing the most critical job we can do. It's directing a business. And that's what we need to get us head around. And above and below the line thinking facilitates that. During the presentation, I talked about growth and how we can jump and make enormous gains um, and respond sharply to uh, the environment, be it over a short period of time for example with Facebook and advertising and Google and advertising we can be tremendously successful for two or three months and then they change the algorithm of how the advertisement 
or the search engine optimization works and straight away we're back on page 10 and, and it dries up. Now we can either respond and grow in that way, boom and bust, or we can seek to achieve what I term evergreen growth, which is incremental, positive incremental growth, which is continuous. And that, in my opinion, is the way to go because it allows us to forecast and plan. We're not hitting boom and bust. We're not responding. We're planning and proactively approaching this. And that's what we want to do. In order to do that, we need to make sure we have the resources available. And the well from which we can draw resources within the care sector is finite. It's not unlimited. So we need to dig our well before we're thirsty. We need to plan and implement strategy right now. We need to recognize the key areas. The key areas I identified are sales, recruitment, and above and below the line thinking. So we need to work out how to become most efficient in those areas, how to be the best we can be to give the greatest opportunity for the people to convert opportunity into clients, customers, and ultimately figures on the bottom line. But in order to do so, we need to provide, and to provide, we have to draw from the well. So we need to dig our well before it's thirsty. We need to have dug it and be the first in line with our bucket in hand. We don't need to be stood at the back asking what's going off and if we can borrow someone else's bucket because we're just going along with things. So it's all about planning, preparation, structure, action planning, and making the most of the departments and the functions we have within our business, particularly sales and particularly recruitment. So... I will leave you with that thought and if there's anything more that you would like to discuss or me to explain in more detail with you because everyone's circumstances are somewhat different and we have to customise sort of responses and replies to people and to take into account their particular set of circumstances but if you want to give me a ring and discuss that or if you want to just contact and get any more detail or any more information with regards to the topics that I've covered I'm aware of the fact that I've been chatting now for almost 55 minutes so well done for managing to stay with me and see it through to the end uh, and again my name's been uh, my name's James Shepherd and I am the profit and growth consultant at authentically present and if you want any more information or if I can be of any further assistance please just drop me an email my email address is James which is j-a-m-e-s dot shepherd and shepherd is spelled s-h-e-p-h-a-r-d at authentically, which is A U T H E N T I C A L Y, present.co.uk. So that's james.shephard at authenticallypresent.co.uk. And I'd be more than happy to respond to any questions that you have, or if I can be of any further assistance, please don't hesitate to give me a ring, and I will look forward to speaking to you then. And I hope this further explanation in a little bit more detail with regards to the topics that I briefly covered at the, um, the growth conference for uh, Home Instead has been helpful. And as I've previously said, if I can be of any further help, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me and I will look forward to speaking to you then. Thank you for being great listeners. Bye-bye.